Jodcast, not sponsored by an energy drink, with Megan Argo, John Field, Ian Morrison, Kat McGuire, Mark Perver, Indy Leclerc, and Liz Guzman. The Jodcast, November 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Kat, and joining me in the studio today are Mark. Hello, Hello Mark. And our new jogcaster, Indy. Hi there. So Indy is a new presenter, uh, so we're going to do our traditional thing and uh, make him tell us what it is that he's doing here at uh, the University of Manchester. So I recently begun my uh, PhD here at Manchester, and I'll be studying um, cosmic magnetism, which involves looking at large-scale magnetic fields in the universe. Uh, notably, the, our own galaxy, the Milky Way, has a magnetic field, so I'm going to be investigating that. Brilliant. Well, it's always good to have new presenters and new blood on the show. Glad to be here. <laughs> and Indy's first contribution, actually, was uh, that witty comment you heard at the beginning, which may or may not have been cryptic to some people, I don't know, but it actually refers to Felix Baumgartner, the Austrian man who jumped out of a ridiculously high balloon, um, which probably a lot of you saw, and it was, it was quite exciting, because I think all of us would like to go up high enough to be able to see the curvature of the Earth, like like he could from space. And to I have would, those cameras with him, it was brilliant. I would not jump out, though. I'd happily just sit there and look and come back down again, but I would not <laughs> jump out. Well, agreed. Although it was almost unreal. Like, when you were standing there, it must have just been, like, I don't know, no sensation of falling, no sound. Could you even take it in when you're standing there? Just the knowing how high I was would be enough. I would not jump out. It just made me feel sick watching him. <laughs> In the show this time, Dr. Martin Stringer tells us about supernova-driven winds and we find out what to see in the night sky from Ian Morrison and John Field. But first, before all of that, here's Megan Argo with this month's Astronomy News. In the news this month, numerous new theories on lunar origins, Earth-sized planet in the Alpha Centauri system, and Sagittarius A star caught snacking. Our nearest neighbour in space, the Moon has long fascinated mankind, but how exactly did it form? The current model says that another body, smaller than our own planet, hit the young proto-Earth, with the moon forming from the debris, but the details of this model are not well defined. October saw the publication of not one, but three papers on the origins of the moon. Two of the new studies, published in the journal Science, describe different models of the actual impact. Every rocky body in the solar system has a distinct chemical fingerprint which distinguishes it, allowing us to identify meteorites which land on the Earth as coming from, say, Mars or the Moon. But the Moon's chemical makeup is startlingly similar to that of the Earth. If it formed in an impact between the Earth and another object, then its composition should be different, incorporating the chemical fingerprint of the impactor as well. These two new studies take different approaches to the problem, but both find solutions which produce a Moon-sized satellite with an Earth-like composition. One study, by researchers at Harvard University, show that a giant impact onto a very fast-spinning young Earth, with a day of between just two and three hours, could result in a debris disk made mostly of material ejected from the Earth's mantle. The second study, by Robin Canop of the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, finds that if the impactor was of a similar size to that of the proto-Earth, then the resulting planet and Moon would both contain material from the impactor as well, resulting in them both having a similar composition today. The third study, published in the journal Nature on the same day, backs up the impact model of the Moon's formation by studying one particular chemical in lunar rocks. Chemical elements can exist as different isotopes of different masses, 
geological processes such as volcanic activity affect certain isotopes more than others, whilst leaving the relative abundances of some elements virtually unchanged. A cataclysmic event such as that which created the moon, whatever the size of the impactor, would have altered the isotopic content of so-called volatile elements, those which can exist as a vapour above temperatures of around 1,000 degrees. One such volatile element for which volcanic activity has little effect is zinc. A team led by Randall Paniello of Washington University in Missouri studied the isotopic content of zinc in lunar rocks, compared it with that of the Earth, and found that the Moon is depleted in lighter isotopes of zinc relative to the Earth, Mars, and primitive meteorites. In the impact scenario, the collision formed a cloud of dust and gas made up of the mantle of the Earth and possibly part of the impacting body. Since lighter isotopes can move faster, they can more easily escape this cloud before the Moon finally condenses, leaving just the heavier isotopes behind, and explaining the chemical composition of the Moon we see today. While all of these studies provide valuable new insights into the nature of our nearest neighbour, the question of the Moon's formation is still not yet fully answered. The team of astronomers responsible for finding the first known planet around a star other than the Sun have now discovered the closest exoplanet to date. Published in the journal Nature on October 17th, their latest discovery is also the smallest known planet orbiting a Sun-like star. This new discovery has been made using the HARPS instrument, a high-resolution, high-precision spectrograph located at the 3.6-metre telescope at ESO's La Silla Observatory in Chile. Using the Doppler effect, the same effect which makes the sound of a siren change in pitch as an ambulance races past, HARPS can measure the tiny changes in the colour of light from a star as it is gradually pulled out of position by the gravitational force of an orbiting planet. Larger planets have stronger gravitational fields, which in turn cause more significant effects on their host stars, so small planets similar to the Earth are hard to detect because their gravitational influence is much smaller. The effect also depends on how close the planet is to its star. The closer a planet is, the shorter its orbit, and the greater the effect on the speed of its host star. This means that, using this radial velocity technique, the easiest planets to find are large gas giants orbiting very close to their stars. Indeed, most exoplanets found so far using this technique have been of this type. Because of the high precision of the HARPS instrument, however, it is capable of finding much smaller planets in larger orbits. The Alpha Centauri system is just 4.3 light-years from our own solar system, and actually consists of three stars the brightest, Alpha Centauri A, and its fainter companion, Alpha Centauri B, are both similar to the Sun, are in a close orbit with each other, while their much fainter and redder companion, known as Proxima Centauri, orbits at a greater distance. The system has been searched for planets in the past, but none were found until now, since other instruments lack the precision needed to find such small planets. This new planet has a minimum mass similar to that of the Earth, and is in orbit around Alpha Centauri B, a star which is slightly cooler and smaller than the Sun. The small mass of this planet highlights the precision of HARPS. The pull it exerts on Alpha Centauri B is just 50 centimetres per second. Despite the similarities with our own planet, this newly discovered world is unlikely to host life as we know it, since it orbits its parent star at just 4% of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, completing an orbit in just three and a quarter Earth days. And finally, NASA's newest set of X-ray eyes on the sky, the Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array, or NUSTAR, has taken its first look at the giant black hole at the centre of our galaxy, and caught it in the middle of a flare. Launched on June 13th, 
Newstar is the first telescope capable of producing focused images of the highest energy X-rays. For two days, the telescope teamed up with other observatories to look at Sagittarius A-star, the name given to the compact radio source located at the very centre of the Milky Way. Observations show a massive black hole lies at this location. Participating telescopes included the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which looks at lower energy X-ray light, and the Keck Observatory atop Mauna Kea in Hawaii, which took infrared images. Compared to supermassive black holes at the centres of other galaxies, Sagittarius A star is relatively quiet. Active black holes tend to swallow stars and other fuel from around them, but Sagittarius A star is thought only to nibble or to not eat at all, a process that is not fully understood. When black holes consume fuel, whether a star, a gas cloud, or as recent Chandra observations have suggested, asteroids, they erupt with extra energy. In the case of New Star, its state-of-the-art telescope is picking up X-rays emitted by matter very close to the black hole, in a region where particles are accelerated to speeds close to that of light, and heated to temperatures of around 1 million degrees Celsius. These new images from New Star, released during October, combined with the simultaneous observations taken at other wavelengths, will help understand the physics of how black holes snack and grow in size. Thanks for that, Megan. Next, Dr. Martin Stringer talks to Liz about the principles of supernova-driven winds. Hi everyone, I'm here in the studio with Dr. Martin Stringer from the Observatory de Paris. Um, he was a colloquium speaker this week in JBCA and he agreed to be jodcasted. Thank you for joining us, Martin. Um, so, your talk was about going ballistic principle of supernova winds. So just from the start, tell us a little bit about supernova and how do you use them? Well, to understand the galaxy population, we, uh, we're interested in the cumulative effect of many supernovae over the lifetime of, of the galaxy. Um, and one of the, the, one of the biggest effects they have on galaxies is to remove the gas, uh, which might otherwise get turned into stars. And the amount of gas they remove, um, where it ends up, uh, the energetics of the whole process are very interesting and it's possible to understand quite a lot about them um, without doing uh, physics that you might not have encountered at, at A-level or even at GCSE. Brilliant. Okay. So you're interested in, so you have a lot of gas in the galaxy, you have to start uh, forming new stars, then you have supernova, they have really strong winds and with these winds you remove the gas so the star formation rate changes. Yeah, uh, if you if you were to try and, and model a galaxy population without including them, uh, you'd reach some conclusions which are quite inconsistent with what we observe. There are many other effects which could influence this, but uh, supernovae can provide a, a large uh, amount of the explanation. Okay, so what are you what are you observing supernova in different galaxies? How do they? Well, the first thing that you need to understand if you're to explain this is the energy that's actually available from, from each supernova and, and hence all of them put together. Uh, and this is quite difficult. Uh, most, of our, uh, most of our knowledge is empirical. Um, we have very sophisticated ways of doing this now by looking at the light curve, or rather the, the way that the light from the supernova changes with time. But the first time we started to get a handle on this uh, was by looking at remnants of supernovae which went off hundreds of years ago. So, in fact, we were able to, uh, to find what was left of a star that exploded in 1573. Um, and it was observed by a, a, quite a famous astronomer called uh, Tycho Brahe. This is a, one example of, of many. 
and it was found in 1967, uh, the remnant of this, which by then had expanded to uh, an enormous distance, um, comparable to the distance from here to the next star. And simply by, by looking at that distance and dividing by the 400 years, you have a sense for how fast this enormous body of gas is moving, and hence you can estimate quite accurately the energy that the star must have provided to accelerate this material up to these speeds. And then if you um, allow correctly for how many of these you would estimate to go off um, in the lifetime of the galaxy. Now in our galaxy this is about one a year, but it's been around for um, many billions of years. Yeah. Then you find that this is enough energy to have ejected um, a large fraction, a half perhaps, um, maybe as much as hundreds, uh, as well as, as 99% um, of the gas uh, and remove that from the system. Oh, wow. So what, what happened to this gas? This gas goes into the... Observationally, um, there's support for it to have left the entire uh, region of, the, of each galaxy or, or of galaxies, um, and it would be in the intergalactic medium. Yes. Awesome. Brilliant. Wow. And so the one that is, hasn't left, I'm guessing it doesn't have the, enough escape velocity to, to leave the galaxy, then it will just go back to the galaxy. So it's kind of like a feedback. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of work being done on that as well. Uh, the term that we use for that is galactic fountain, because okay. um, in a system like the Milky Way, our own galaxy, which is a bit bigger, um, so the gravitational influence on the gas is bigger, we expect, um, and people have modelled this uh, at Oxford in some detail, um, that the uh, the material will be launched out of the disk of the galaxy, but then fall back in again. And the yes. fact that it falls back in in a slightly different position can explain quite a lot of the observed um, distribution of stars in the galaxy. So this is actually quite recent work by um, by uh, my former colleagues at Oxford. Brilliant. That's, that's pretty amazing. So in your talk, you also mentioned, because you're doing like a... Um... Well, you, you did like an numerical analysis and simulations, right? Um, so how how did they compare and what were the results? Well, well yeah, I think Martin Rees uh, famously mentioned that uh, galaxy formation theory was a bit like mud wrestling. Um, he's comparing it to traditional uh, theoretical physics, which is a bit more elegant, perhaps like fencing or... Uh, or judo or something with a much more elegant set of rules, um, <laughs> whereas mud wrestling is a bit more improvised. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think he has a point. Um, I, I think, yeah, you see this in the, uh, the action films these days, that uh, it's not like, not like the old James Bond films where it's sort of like uh, English boxing. You know, I mean, these days that they, they have all the necessary training, but they're not above, you know, just sort of throwing a pencil case at their <laughs> adversary if it means that they get away. And uh, I think when we're attacking this problem... Certainly in our research group, we're very keen to, to have um, very detailed numerical simulations of, of the process to, to help us understand and to, to back up our arguments. We're, in our research group, we're very keen uh, to have both highly advanced, sophisticated numerical models uh, and also uh, very simple um, explanations using, as, a, as we say, using physics, which almost anyone can, can get to grips with um, to understand at least the first order behavior uh, of, the, uh, of the galaxy population. And then if we want to try and get into more detail and understand any particular system with peculiar uh, 
qualities, then we can use more sophisticated uh, modeling techniques. But we like to have both uh, a broad explanation, which is satisfactory um, and easy to understand, and then also the incredibly detailed explanation for, uh, for specific cases. Right. So what did you find then when you <laughs> compare them? <laughs> well, it, in, in our relatively simple model, we, we have uh, a picture where each supernova that goes off will we'll take with it a body of gas which is uh, constrained by momentum conservation, which is something that most people come across at school um, uh, during their GCSEs, perhaps, or maybe even earlier. So it's a very a fundamental piece of physics which, which is governing the evolution of the, uh, of the supernova remnants. And then at some much later stage, there's a phase which is primarily governed by energy conservation, and that's where going ballistic in the title of the colloquium came from, because a, a ballistic particle is something which is uh, moving only under gravity. Uh, so a ballista is that uh, enormous catapult thing which the uh, Romans used to smash down enemy castles. Um, <laughs> right. And so if you, if you imagine the movement of one of those great boulders, um, that's a very bad description. Um, of a of a supernova explosion in the early phases, but later on, when it's got out of the galaxy and it's moving and the gas is moving away, perhaps it is a good enough description to provide a good, a satisfactory first order description. And this this uh, approach was uh, was forwarded in the 1970s as a way of understanding the gas content of galaxies, and we've modified that. Um, to allow for correctly, we hope for for the earlier stages of the evolution, and um, and we have also run uh, the highest resolution numerical simulations that we can to try and see if the if they support this idea as well. Very good. Yes, would you be skeptical about this or? Uh... Well, no, because your fits were pretty good, apart from the dwarf galaxies one that you that you said that. The dwarf galaxies, the very smallest galaxies. Um, are right at the limit uh, of whether the galaxies can form at all. So the way um, the way that our simple explanation for supernovae, are based on ideas from from thirty or forty years ago, um, the way that these these simple approximations work is to assume that that the the gas can accumulate into the galaxy effectively. Now, for the very smallest systems, that's not going to be true. And this and many other aspects of the problem are really ultimately governed by the structure of the hydrogen atom. So below a certain temperature, it's very, very difficult for, uh, for the atoms to radiate any energy. So they will sit out, in the, out in, in, the, in the halo that surrounds the galaxy, um, the corona is another name for it. Uh, they will sit there quite happily for very, very long periods um, without radiating any energy, and so they so they won't fall into the center and form a galaxy, or certainly not as effectively as they would if they were in a larger region and hence a bit hotter. Right. And actually, uh, as well as that, the, the the structure of the hydrogen atom will influence um, the amount of momentum uh, that is carried along with the supernovae remnants, um, because that will affect how that gas radiates energy as well. And in fact, the reason we can see the remnant, uh, for example, the one we talked about earlier, is because it is radiating energy. So it's actually at the phase that we're interested in. It's not in a. It's not conserving the energy that was given to it by the exploding star, but it. W but it will have to conserve momentum. Um, so that links in with what we were saying earlier. Yeah. So. Um... 
in in terms of the different galaxies that you can observe everywhere, um, does the does the wind coming from the supernova? Does it know that it's living in a dwarf galaxy? Does it know like the the environment around it? Um, well, the supernova itself, I think the answer has to be to first order no. How how can it know? Um, on a scale on the scale that that is important to the evolution of the stellar remnant, what type of galaxy it's in now of course, the environment that they might on average find themselves will vary um, so that is something that which definitely needs to allow which we need to allow for but we're 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 hoping that if we if we pick the right phase in the remnant um to characterize uh, the momentum and the energy that's available, then that might be more or less the same. Um, in any galaxy, and then it's the later part of the evolution when the gas tries to escape where the system that it's in will become really important. So this is one way of making uh, the explanation very simple and accessible if you can divide it into these two phases. And uh, and more advanced modelling can determine uh, eventually whether, whether or not this approximation is going to work. Do you have like, um? well, I'm guessing it evolves with time, right? So in a galaxy, you have supernova goes off, goes off, some gas you will lose, some gas it will come back, and then you have another supernova and another and another and another. But you are losing gas all the time, I'm guessing. Is it like the, the scale velocity will be less and less and less because you have less mass? Which velocity? So the, the, the velocity of the gas when it's... Well, you're, yeah, as you said earlier, it's... It's probably quite true that that close to where the supernovae go off, there wouldn't you wouldn't expect there to be any difference from one galaxy to the next, regardless of what type of galaxy that was. So initially, uh, the the velocity of the material will be the same in all systems, but later on, it will in the bigger systems have decelerated a lot more um, because of the greater gravitational pull from a larger galaxy. So uh, we would expect to see higher velocity winds in smaller systems um, than the same distant, uh, the same distance from larger systems. Yeah, but I mean, in the same system. In the same system, there will be a huge range of speeds, yeah. um, dependent on all sorts of things: um, the location of the star within the galaxy, uh, the density of the gas surrounding it, and many other effects. Um, but what we would like to do. Uh, to effectively model the whole population and understand its properties is integrate uh, effectively over all these different possibilities, which over an entire lifetime of a galaxy might well be quite accurate. Yeah. From your research, from your perspective, what, what do you think is going? What else do you have to... I mean, well, apart from putting a lot of parameters in your models and make it better... better. Well, the the goal would be to take take parameters out of the models, right? Make um, them simple. Or... Yeah. So uh, uh, there uh, again, characterizing the, the two the two methods for modeling, um, the analytic method, where you're trying to uh, have as few have as fewer parameters in your model as possible, and ideally the whole thing would be would you'd be possible to do the whole thing with a pen and paper, because your understanding of the physics. Um, is such uh, that you can predict uh, the emergent phenomena that we see um, from first principles. So any parameters that are in there would have to be made up entirely uh, of fundamental constants, but with as few equations as possible. 
and then with a numerical model, what you want to do is to put in the most fundamental physics that you can. And so you're not bothered about how many equations you are, you're just bothered about how fundamental they are. So the perfect simulation would be um, to have every single particle in the, in the model. Uh, whereas the perfect analytic model would have zero particles, it would just write, you'd just be able to write down the answer. Now, of course, <laughs> neither of these is possible, but that shows you the extremes to which each type of modeling process is striving. Yeah. Um, uh, so our goal is to, is to do both. We want to, we want to be able to reproduce fully all the fine complexity of the process by a really, really well designed numerical model. Um, and then what we also want to do is to be able to explain in a very, very elegant and very um, accessible way uh, some of the observed properties um, by doing as much maths as we can ourselves, sometimes with the aid of a computer, but not relying on it for the answer, so that the final answer just depends on the fundamental physics that we know is responsible for what we're seeing, or we think it is. Yeah. I remember one of the questions that you were asked was about AGN feedback. Yes. Yeah, so how do you treat that? Well, certainly that's an entire interview in itself, uh, <laughs> and you might want to get someone else on the microphone. Yeah. But uh, clearly, uh, to, to get the full picture, that's got, to, that's got to be included. But it's quite important, I think, to understand the effects and the importance of one, of one thing at a time. Yeah, um, otherwise, even the readers of even the readers that, that that will read the full article in the scientific journal will just get a little bit lost about the relative importance of all these different things. And also, as modelers, it's difficult to stay honest if you're <laughs> if you're allowed to include any effects at any point to solve any problem. So, what we really wanted to do is get back to some of the uh, traditional work that had been done in this field and see um, see to what extent that was still valid um, and. Whether, we, uh, whether there is clear evidence that we needed to revise our ideas on this. Um, and there are regimes in the galaxy population where supernovae are, are much more important than AGN. Um, for example, right. in many galaxies, the AGN are not there at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we do, so uh, we're certainly aware of the need to include both, but are very keen to fully understand each independently as well. Very good. Well, thank you very much for the interview. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope I haven't waffled too much. <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for that, Liz. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those things we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, Indy, what do you have for us this episode? This week, I found an odd and end about um, exoplanets. You may have seen them in the news recently where um, one was discovered very close to, well, very, relatively close to us, orbiting um, Alpha Centauri B. And um, I found that a couple of astrobiologists reckon that they can um, help identify rocky exoplanets that could harbor life. They found a simple way to do this using the color of the, uh, the light that we receive from the exoplanets, which is very faint. But if you divide that light using filters and plot one color, which is going to be bluish-green versus a more reddish color, um, the the planets on the diagram will split up according to what type they are, if they're rocky or gassy or gaseous, or, um, and also depending on what surface they have, so maybe it's snow or ice, or maybe it's more sandy. And uh, using models based on um, on terrestrial surfaces which harbor extreme forms of life such as bacteria that thrive in very hot or very cold conditions um, 
they found that it was a useful way of identifying planets that could then be followed up using more precise spectroscopic observations and which would then study the contents of the atmosphere, for example. So this would be easier than spectroscopy, I guess, because it's not splitting up into so many colours. Yeah, it's just using two filters, which you can literally just put onto your telescope and you'll get the two um, different bands of light rather than having to look at very small frequency channels. And uh, it would be a sort of way of flagging up interesting planets that we could then research further because uh, it seems like we're going to be discovering more and more Earth-like rocky exoplanets in the future. Is there any chance this one around Alpha Centauri B could have any life on it? Because I heard it's a little bit hot. A uh, teeny bit hot. It's uh, it's its orbit is about three days around its star, which is, <laughs> well, it's very, very close to its star and um, be a bit uncomfortable, I think. <laughs> so what have you got for us this episode, Mark? Um, well, back to Earth for this one. Uh, it's all about the Aurora Borealis, or the Northern Lights, and the Aurora Australis, which is the Southern Lights. And those are the kind of um, weird lights that sometimes can be seen in the night sky near the North and South Poles sort of ripply curtains of greens and blues and reds and things uh, that all come about because of particles coming from the sun. Uh, so that's the phenomenon called the solar wind, where the sun ejects subatomic particles and they interact with the Earth's magnetic field and some of them get through, interact with the Earth's atmosphere and make these nice colours. Uh, and this website that we found called Aurora Live Europe is all about forecasting when you might have a chance to see the aurora and at what latitude, so where you have to be on Earth. So are we going to get the aurora here anytime soon? Uh, well, not in the next three days, which is how far ahead the forecast goes. Um, normally it's at higher latitudes. Down here in Manchester we're at about 53.5 degrees north. Um, this website has a list of auroral events this year, and the lowest latitude they've been seen at is 59 degrees, according to that. Not too far, so is it? So that's Scotland, so we're not too far off. But for them to come down here, it's more unusual... Someone told me that out at Jodrell Bank they saw a nice aurora during the 1970s. We must be due one soon. So we should be. Um, from this website, well, there's a few of them actually that you can see predictions on. This one's well presented though, and it tells you what sort of things you, you need to see a good aurora. So, um, But they go into things like whether the moon is likely to be out, spoiling the uh, the observations, and also just the intensity of the solar wind. And then observations from SOHO, which is NASA's Solar Heliospheric Observatory, which looks at X-ray flux from the sun. Yeah, we've got a lot of quite a lot of solar activity at the moment. So yeah, we're coming up to solar maximum next year. So what they do is they look out for flares, which is when the sun suddenly gets brighter. And then what they're really looking for is phenomena that are normally associated, not absolutely always, but normally called coronal mass ejections, which is when the sun suddenly kicks out a burst of particles. And that's when you can hope for a good aurora if those particles head towards the Earth although it's always a bit unpredictable because it also depends on the alignment of the magnetic field that those particles actually have in relation to the Earth's magnetic field. That determines whether they're actually going to get through or not. Keep our fingers crossed for that. One. Yeah, and actually just for anyone in the Southern Hemisphere, although you could probably use the same prediction services um, for the solar activity anyway, with the magnetic field it, it, it may give you good northern lights and not good southern lights or vice versa. So there is an Australian service as well called the Ionospheric Prediction Service from the Australian Government's Bureau of Meteorology and you can sign up for emails or texts telling you Aurora Alert. So it'll give you time to get down to Jodrell Bank. Exactly. A nice dark sky. Well, that's the thing. So you've got a three-day warning. Maybe in the next year we might be lucky 
uh, those of us at not such high northern latitudes maybe will get to see some aurora. And apparently they're amazing. I've never actually seen them myself. Interesting stuff. Indy, have you got another odd and end for us? Um, yeah, continuing on the, uh, the visually impressive uh, thread that um, Mark started with the auroras, um, the ESO, the European Southern Observatory, released an image um, very recently, which is the biggest um, image in the infrared ever released, and it's got about 84 million stars in it, and it's 9 gigapixels big. Um, just for a scale, for, for a reference in terms of computer sizes, the full-size image to download on the website is about 25 gigabytes large, um, so that's pretty massive. And if it was printed on paper at the resolution that most books or magazines are printed at, the image would be 9 meters by 7 meters wide. The image itself is of the bulge, the central bulge of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy with a central bulge, a sort of fat protuberance in the middle, and um, the image, which is about um, 10 times bigger than, than previous studies and taken in the infrared, actually lets us study the bulge in much greater detail than previously, and that will reveal key information about the structure and the evolution of the Milky Way. And how much of the Milky Way is actually covered? Because 84 million stars is a lot, but it's not the whole galaxy by any means. No, it, it isn't. And uh, in fact, it's only a very tiny fraction of the sky, uh, 315 square degrees, which is less than 1% of the sky. Um, so it just gives us a sense of scale as to how big um, what we can see when we look up actually is. I love these big images. I like the idea of just one huge image that astronomers mine for years, just yeah. at all the like the Hubble Deep Field. It's yeah. my favourite picture of all time. Maybe we can get a nine by seven meter printout of that. Like it wouldn't that. fit in the Jodcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to go see it for yourself, there will be a link uh, to the actual image, which um, has a very useful zoomable tool, tool online, um, so you can move around, pan, and zoom without slowing your computer down too much. Hopefully. Okay, staying with galaxies. My story concerns the discovery of a rather unusual type of galaxy. So, as many of our listeners may know, galaxies can be categorised into two main types. There's spiral galaxies, which consist of a central bulge um, and their characteristic spiral arms, and elliptical galaxies, which have a uniform luminosity. Um, but recently, scientists at the Centre for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, used a radio telescope to look through the dust of a previously well-known elliptical galaxy called Centaurus A, and they found that it has spiral arms at its centre. And that's currently the only known elliptical galaxy to show um, spiral arms at its centre. And it's thought to, be, thought to have been caused by Centaurus A swallowing a spiral galaxy about 300 million years ago. So I kind of imagined at first when you said, I imagined like sometimes elliptical galaxies are made by a smash-up of spiral galaxies and I thought maybe this was the remnants of a big mash-up. Are you saying it's actually a still-surviving structure that's gone in? The evidence for the galaxy swallowing um, a spiral galaxy is um, quite a prominent dust lane. And also the other interesting thing is the spiral arms are intact um, and they show characteristics that are quite similar to the spiral arms in the Milky Way in size and shape and the the star formation activity and things like that. So they, they look like they've survived intact and they're just kind of um, 
yeah, sitting at the heart of this elliptical galaxy, like a galaxy within a galaxy. So is that the only um, object like that that we know of in the universe, or are there more? Well, currently it's the only known um, elliptical galaxy to show spiral arms, but um, it's thought that with the advent of new technologies such as ALMA, then potentially we'll be able to find more galaxies like this. Call them Matryoshka galaxies, galaxies within galaxies within galaxies. <laughs> I wonder how far you'd go. <laughs> oh, yeah. You need to copyright that. Quite a nice quote from somebody called Daniel Espada, um, who works at the Centre for Astrophysics and also the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan. And in reference to the fact that spiral galaxies are tend to have younger stars than elliptical galaxies... Um, he says that Centaurus A has been given a new lease on life um, by that past merger, and he describes it as young at heart. <laughs> Speaking of young at heart, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky, November 2012. Well, after the sun has set, over in the west, we see that lovely group of constellations Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. They're three bright stars, Deneb, Vega, and Altair, making up what's called the Summer Triangle, but still quite visible quite late into the autumn. But moving over towards the south, we have quite a large constellation, that of Pegasus, the winged horse. It's actually upside down, as seen from the Northern Hemisphere. Four stars make up the great square of Pegasus, and quite a good way of judging how dark and transparent your sky is, is to count how many stars you can see within the square. I'm lucky if I can do more than five, but younger people and darker skies can see many more than that. Below that is in fact a very faint constellation called Pisces, the fishes. And up to the left of Pegasus is Andromeda. And in the night sky page, just Google that, I have a little chart to show you how to find Andromeda, starting, it's called star hopping, from the star Alpharats, which is the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus, and moving up and then to the right. If it's clear, and around New Moon, about uh, November the 12th, you've got some chance of actually leaving Andromeda, working your way back down, crossing the route you came, and carrying on to find M33, which is the third largest galaxy in our local group, Andromeda being number one, our own Milky Way galaxy being number two, and M33 being number three. Moving further over, we have high up in the sky, Cassiopeia, and following below that, we have the constellation of Perseus. Two nice things in Perseus. In the region between Cassiopeia and Perseus, along the arc of the Milky Way, lies the double cluster. It's a wonderful object in binoculars or a small telescope. One of the beauties of the sky, I think. There's a rather nice star in Persia called Algol, the demon star. It's actually an occulting binary, and every few days its brightness drops quite considerably before rising again. That's worth looking out for. Further over, rising up in the east, we have this other wonderful region of the sky. The brightest star is Capella in Auriga. Again, that constellation lies along the Milky Way. It contains quite a number of what are called open clusters, young groupings of stars, and they can be picked up with binoculars. 
you'll also see the nearest open cluster to us, the Pleiades cluster, or one of the nearest, beautiful object. And that is in Taurus the bull. It has the bright star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, which is actually halfway between ourselves and what is called the Hyades cluster. So it's actually an interloper. But there's another interloper there at the moment this month, as we'll see later, and that is the bright planet Jupiter. As the evening wears on, so Orion will rise. The three stars making up his belt will point down to the left to Sirius, but that won't rise till sometime later. Below the belt, though, you might spot a misty patch. That is the Great Orion Nebula, a region of star formation where stars, like our sun, are being born as we speak. And finally, going over slightly to the north of east, Gemini will be rising. It's two bright stars, Castor and Pollux. So a lot to see, and of course we now have many more hours of darkness in which to see them. What about the planets? Well, I've already mentioned Jupiter. It rises about 8pm at the beginning of November, and in fact during twilight by the end of the month, Because it's now in quite a high part of the ecliptic, when it's due south, it's actually some 60 degrees elevation, above much of the murk we have in our atmosphere. So our viewing conditions for Jupiter this year and next year are probably the best they'll be and have been for some time. It starts the month lying just 7 degrees to the upper left of the star Aldebaran. Is actually moving westwards in the sky in what is called retrograde motion and carries on doing so until the beginning of February. So its brightness increases very slightly and it moves slightly closer and above Aldebaran during the month. With an angular size of nearly 48 arc seconds by the end of the month, there's lots of detail visible. And I can't think of a better reason for buying a small telescope to have a look at Jupiter and, of course, its four lovely Galilean moons which we see weaving their way around it. Now Saturn, it passed behind the Sun on the 25th of October, and it's still pretty close. It's just six degrees away from the Sun as November begins, which means, of course, it's totally lost in the Sun's glare. But during the month, the separation, the elongation, as they say, increases to about 32 degrees. So by the end of the month, it will rise three hours before sunrise, and we will be visible above the eastern horizon. In the first couple of those weeks, you'll probably need binoculars to pick it up, but later on, it should be quite easy to see. And the really nice thing to say about Saturn is that the rings are opening out. They're now about 18 degrees to the line of sight. You may remember a year or so ago, they were edge on. You couldn't see them at all. So when it's reasonably high in elevation, it might take a while to to do that. We have a reasonable chance of seeing Cassini's division in the ring system. Something to look out for with a small telescope. You should also be able to spot Saturn's brightest and largest satellite called Titan. Well, Mercury, on the other hand, passes in front of the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on November the 17th. So, in fact, we can't see it until the very end of the month, when it may be spotted down to the lower left of Saturn and Venus. And again, on the night sky page, that is one of the highlights. So at the very end of the month, in fact, it's risen to magnitude minus 0.3, so reasonably bright. Mars has been hanging around in the western sky for ages now, quite low. It's sort of moving eastwards, and that means it's still visible. It's actually now in Ophiuchus, and that's probably not a constellation you're well aware of, and it goes into Sagittarius on the 27th. It's visible low in the west after sunset, 
with a magnitude of about plus 1.2. However, its angular size is just over four arc seconds, so you'll see no details, I think, on its salmon pink disk. And finally, Venus. Well, it rises about three hours before the sun, and honestly, with a magnitude of minus four, it completely dominates the pre-dawn sky. If you've just looked out over towards the east before dawn, you just can't fail to spot it. During November, it's actually getting smaller in terms of its angular size, but at the same time, the percentage that's illuminated is increasing, from 81 to 88% as it happens. And that actually means that the brightness barely changes from minus 4.0 to minus 3.9 magnitudes. So, in fact, we can see all the planets, the major planets this month. And in fact, I've also given you some details of how to find Neptune on the night sky page. Well, finally, the highlights of the month. Well, I have to say that November is the first of probably three great months during which to view Jupiter. As I said, it's in Taurus, high in the ecliptic, and fairly high in the sky when it's in the south. It's looking a bit different than it has been for a while. The um, North Equatorial Belt has actually become quite broad. The great red spot is sort of a pale shade of pink, but you can sort of see it against the South Equatorial Belt. I've given you a list of when that great red spot is roughly facing us on the meridian in the evening. There's probably about 10 or 11 of those a good chance to have a look for the great red spot. And for those that do any imaging, there's a nice opportunity at the end of November when, in fact, during complete darkness, you could actually image during a complete rotation of Jupiter. And I have seen people who've made one little movies just showing the planet rotating. So perhaps we'll see some more of those sometime in the spring. But you can see Mars. November the 16th after sunset might be a good time to try. It's seen below a nice thin crescent moon in the southwestern sky. You can search for Neptune best around the 10th to the 15th of November because that's around new moon, so the skies will be quite dark. It lies um, in Aquarius and again there's a chart to show you where it is. Not that obvious. A go-to telescope is a good thing to find to, to help find it. But if you do, you may just spot a sort of a darkish bluish disk. We have a meteor shower this month. Probably one of the two best. It's called the Leonids, and that's on the 16th and 17th. And if you've been listening, you'll be aware that that's just after new moon. So the light from the moon is not going to get in the way. The meteors come from the comet Temple Tuttle, and uh, we sometimes get some really nice events, even a meteor storm. One is not predicted, I might say, this year. They're about every 33 years, which is to do with the orbital period of the comet, when we might get something rather good. This year, perhaps not. But nevertheless, you probably ought to see 20 meteors an hour. And as the Leonid name implies, the radiant from where the meteors seem to diverge is in the constellation of Leo the Lion. So you have to wait up really till after midnight. And that's always when it's best to observe meteor showers because then, then the Earth is facing the direction where the meteors come from. At the very end of the month, there are a couple of things we can look for. On the 27th, at dawn, just before dawn, Venus and Saturn, just 0.8 degrees between them. It's a very nice grouping. They differ in brightness on that day by 4.6 magnitudes so that Venus will be almost a hundred times brighter than Saturn. 
on November the 28th, after sunset, you can actually see Jupiter and a full moon. Jupiter will be rising close to the moon and the moon will have risen just a, a few hours earlier. One last thing. On the very end of November, the 30th, Mercury is near its greatest elongation and if you could look out to the east on a clear morning before dawn, you'll actually see Saturn highest up, then Venus, the brightest, and then Mercury lined up in the eastern sky. Mercury, with a magnitude of minus 0.2, will probably be seen as its best for some time. So quite a nice lot of things to look at during the month. I do hope you enjoy and have plenty of dark skies. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere's night sky. Kia and welcome to the November Jobcast, coming to you from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. In our evening sky, the winter constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are disappearing in our twilight sky in the west, heralding the arrival of our summer evenings. Mercury will be in the western sky after sunset during the early parts of November, below Antares, and by the middle of the month, it will have moved into the twilight sky and will be difficult to spot. Mars is higher up, past Antares, and is moving in front of the stars forming Ophiuchus, the serpent barrier. This constellation sits between Scorpius and Sagittarius. Ophiuchus is sometimes called the coffin as its five brightest stars form a coffin-like shape. Two globular clusters M10 and 12 can be found within three degrees of each other in Ophiuchus. At magnitude 6.4 and 7.6, the first should be visible in binoculars, whilst the second will need a good sky. Opposite Taurus, Orion and Canis Major are climbing into the eastern sky, providing a variety of new targets following our winter constellations. These constellations will be visible throughout our November nights. The three brightest stars in our sky, Sirius, Canopus and Alpha Centauri, can be found spread along our southeastern horizon, forming a flattened triangle. Sirius, the brightest of the three stars, is in the east. It is the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the large dog. To us in the southern hemisphere, the dog lies upside down in our night sky, so we see him lying on his back with his feet up in the air. Sirius marks the front of the dog. To the northeast of Sirius we find the constellation of Taurus the Bull and Orion the Hunter. The face of Taurus is outlined by the V-shaped asterisk of the stars known as the Hyades Cluster. In Greek mythology, the Hyades were the five daughters of Atlas and half-sisters to the Pleiades. The brightest star in this group is Orange Aldebaran, the name meaning the follower in Arabic, and this came about as a star follows the Pleiades across the sky. Aldebaran is actually a foreground star 65 light years away, whilst the other stars in the V are about 153 light years away. Taurus's long horns extend downwards towards our northern horizon. Jupiter sits between Aldebaran, the brightest star in Taurus, and Alnath, the second brightest star, the brighter of the two horn tips, appearing as a brilliant white star. Jupiter will be high in the northern sky by midnight. Jupiter will be at its best at opposition, closest to the Earth, in early December, and will appear at its brightest during this time in our sky. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal Jupiter's four largest moons, which will change position from night to night. Near to the fainter tip of the two horns, small telescopes will reveal the faint smudge of light called M1, or more commonly, the Crab Nebula. This expanding cloud of dust and gas is a result of a supernova that was observed in 1054. Visible as a dim haze in binoculars, 
a 100mm or greater telescope will begin to reveal more of its shape and detail. The Crab Nebula marks the end of a star's life, whilst the Pleiades cluster marking Taurus's back are youthful stars. Also known as the Seven Sisters, Matariki and Subaru, along with many other names, they feature in the star lore of many cultures in both hemispheres. Many see only six stars or less due to light pollution. Away from city lights, the number increases to over 12. The cluster is about 440 light years away, and its brightest stars are over 200 times brighter than our Sun. Their age has been estimated to be about 100 million years old, a blink in the life of many stars. Sitting along the ecliptic, the Moon, Sun and planets can pass near or in front of the Pleiades, creating a stunning sight. East from Taurus we find Orion hanging upside down. He has his shield raised towards Taurus and a club above his head. A line of three stars marks his belt. A second line of faint stars above and to the right of the belt forms his sword. You may be able to see a faint haze in the sword of Orion, known as the Great Nebula in Orion. It is a vast star-forming region, about 1,200 light-years away. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal more detail. Large telescopes will show many faint tendrils of gas and many faint stars in and around the nebula. To most southern hemisphere star watchers, the belt and sword form the pot, or the saucepan. To Māori, the three stars are known as Tautoro. Moving further to the south, we find Canopus sitting aside the Milky Way. The second brightest star in our night sky is in fact the brightest within 1,000 light years of our solar system. Moving along the Milky Way, we find Alpha Centauri. The third brightest star is one of the two pointer stars, the other being the nearby bright star Beta Centauri that points towards the Southern Cross, or Crux. Appearing in the shape of a diamond kite, it can be found in the southwestern sky after sunset, sitting between Canopus and Alpha Centauri. It will get progressively lower in our evening sky before climbing higher in the southeast after midnight. With a declination of minus 60, Crux will never set in New Zealand and can be seen as far north as plus 20, where it is visible along the southern horizon during May. Until about 6,000 years ago, it would have been visible from southern Britain, but due to precession, this group of stars has been lost from view. Nearby to Crux, you can find the diamond and false crosses that are not true constellations, but are asterisms, easily seen patterns in the sky. This month, Australia, New Zealand and most of the South Pacific Islands are treated to a solar eclipse on the 14th of November, and it is a total eclipse in a thin band across northern Australia. The cities of Keynes and Port Douglas will have just over two minutes of totality at 6.39 in the morning, and then the path travels inland through the sparsely populated outback. Either side of the central eclipse, path observers will get to see a less spectacular partial eclipse. All of New Zealand will see a partial eclipse. From North Cape, about 91% of the sun will be covered, and from Invercargill, only 58% will be covered. For us, maximum eclipse time is at 10.36 in the morning. When observing a partial solar eclipse, you must use proper solar filters. Any viewing with normal sunglasses, binoculars or telescope will lead to permanent eye damage. Astronomical societies and many observatories will be selling solar eclipse glasses or running observing events and will have specific times for your locations. Only during the total part of the eclipse is it safe to observe with the unaided eye. At this time you may be able to see the faint pearly glow of the corona. Some bright stars and planets may be seen as well. On the morning of the 29th of November, the full moon will move through the Earth's shadow and a lunar eclipse will be seen. 
This eclipse will not be very impressive as the moon will not appreciably move for the deepest part of the shadow called the umbra. And maximum is at 3.31am. Not a very sociable time. From the team here at Carter, we wish you well and we wish you clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. Do you have some posts there for us, Indy? Yeah, we've got a lovely postcard from uh, Sri Lanka, from Jodcaster Libby, uh, which has got two elephants splashing about in a river. And um, she writes, Dear Jodcasters, absolutely no astronomy is taking place. However, elephant riding and lots of adventures are! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Love, Libby, who is still in one piece. <laughs> and now she's actually back from Sri Lanka and doing astronomy again, so that's good to know. Unfortunately, no elephants involved. <laughs> you got some email for us, Mark? Yeah, we had an email from Lindsay Robertson, who looks forward to each episode and has almost all of them downloaded, ideal for a long commute. And also, Lindsay likes the intros, which shows that she's not that far of the way through because the intros unfortunately we don't have anymore because they used to be done by Dave Alt. They were great. He mentions particularly the Cinderella one and the HAL 9000 one. Um, so we don't want to spoil your fun but those intros are actually only in the early ones. However, thank you very much for that email. So also thanks to Joda the Oak, Earth Unit and Sweetie for their contributions on the forum. And also thanks to Daniel Yunt for his comments on the Lofar video on Facebook. And as usual, thanks for all your likes. Thanks for the tweets and follow Fridays on Twitter as well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr Martin Stringer for the interview. The editors were Dan Thornton, Megan Argo, Liz Guzman, Kat Maguire and Mark Perver. The producer was Kat Maguire. Until next time, Jod, Jod on! on.